Are you a giver or a taker? The fact is that we grew up in a world that teaches us how to take. And sometimes justifiably so, with the argument that if you don't take care of yourself, no one else will. So it's like a world of survival of the fittest. But is that accurate? And is that healthy? And is it even true? Short term, yes, it would seem I take, I protect myself. But how about the concept of love? Of nobility, of virtue? What happens to that when we become in a state and a mentality of taker? How important is giving in life? Please join me in this important talk. How to become a giver in a world of takers. Hi, this is Simon Jacobson, and we will be speaking about how to become a giver in a world of takers. This program is dedicated by Ricardo Lehman, our dear friend, in honor of the birthday of his daughter, Megan Lehman, Miriam Batyakov Koppel. So, maybe the most, most, the most important opening question is, are you a giver or a taker? How would you categorize yourself? The fact is, whether we like it or not, by default we're born into a world where a big primary focus, even though it may not be stated explicitly, is to learn how to be a taker. With the argument that some may feel is even justifiable, that we live in the survival of the fittest. If you don't take care of yourself, no one else will take care of you. So you need to build the resources, the skills, the connections to make sure that I come first, that I'm taken care of. Obviously in a civil world of coexistence, we're not talking about going to the extreme, the argument with God, which means total selfishness and narcissism. There has to be some element of give and take, even from a taking point perspective because other people also want to take. So there has to be some negotiation. But still, the center of existence is me. Am I taking? You know, they tell the, the joke about three friends who went rowing, Joe, Jack, and Peter. And Jack, middle of the rowing trip, bends over and slips into the water. And he starts yelling, I can't swim, I can't swim, save me. So they row closer to him, they stretch out their arm, the oar, and they say to Jack, Jack, give me your hand, give me your hand. And he refuses. Jack, give me your hand, I'll save you. He refuses. And Peter tells Joe, he says, Jack doesn't know how to give 
He only knows how to take. So Peter yells, so Job yells out to, to Jack. He says, take my hand, take my hand. And Jack grabs the hand and they pull him back into the boat. Another way that captures this, just comes to mind, is these two guys go camping at night. In the middle of the night, one of them wakes up. He hears a bear scurrying about. He tells his friend, he wakes him up and says, we have to get out of here, there's a bear. And while he's saying that, he's tying his shoelaces of his sneakers. And his friend says to him, as he's rubbing his eyes, what do you think, you can run, outrun the bear? He says, no, all I have to do is outrun you. These are examples of a world of takers. And as I said, many of us can even justify and explain it. And bottom line is, it's not about justification, it's about the fact that we live in a society where that is, without, as I, again, saying it as much, saying it so explicitly, is the attitude, is the mindset, the mentality. You look in businesses, the idea of competition. You even look at how certain, in certain industries, bosses use and play even friends against each other to compete for a client, to compete for profits, to compete for a, to advance, for a promotion. It creates a climate of this taking climate, taking climate. But there is a voice in all of us that knows there's another part of us that is a giver, that is virtuous, that has a selflessness to it. So what is going on here? And how do we deal with that? Is it healthy to have a taking attitude. And it's understandable. People will argue. We're not talking about anarchy. We're not talking about total narcissism and selfishness. There's a give and take. But as evolutionary biologists will explain, using Richard Dawkins' title of his book, The Selfish Gene, that even when we give, it's also selfish. It's because in order to receive, in order to take, we need to give something. From our own good, for our own welfare, for our own good, it's healthier to be a person that also gives. But so then giving is also rendered into a form of self-preservation, of survival, of survival. And it's important to look at this because often the things that are so destructive and damaging are not necessarily so blatant. They're the underlying, the undercurrent of an attitude that we don't even think about. It becomes default. This is the way we're trained. This is the way we think. I remember as a child when we used to play musical chairs in our classroom. It always disturbed me. Musical chairs, as you may know, you put a certain amount of chairs, one less than the amount of children in the room. They start playing music. When the music stops, everyone has to grab a chair. There's always going to be one person missing a chair. And he's out of the game. And then they take another, remove another chair. So another one is out until... You have one remaining. I always found it cruel. I remember always the kid that was the slower one, feeling humiliated, feeling sad. I'm not saying anyone had any malicious intentions, but I remember even playing, and I once actually allowed someone else to grab the chair, even though I could have grabbed it before him. I just felt, and then one is left, the one. Now you could say just a game. Competitive competition, listen, every sport as winners and losers. I'm not suggesting we have to sometimes learn how to lose as well, and that helps us excel. But there are some, there's also an element 
that almost plants a certain idea that of dominance, of, of winning at the expense of another. And what needs to be taught is the opposite, that even when you win, it's really for everybody, which we'll discuss shortly. So we do live in a climate and a mentality, a taking mentality. Now again, you'll say, well, because everybody else is selfish. If everybody was selfless, I'd also be selfless. Like I remember years ago, I thought of an idea. I called it the Global Day of Goodness. Let's designate, declare one day of goodness that everyone is good and kind, is giving. Ask criminals to take a day off. One day off. Everybody should just be giving. No one behaves selfishly in one day. Just one day. Let's see how it works. And I remember asking a few people, would you go along? Yeah, of course. If everybody did it, of course I would. So why not? Why wouldn't you do it? Well, I'd be standing near the door to see who's running to the cookie jar first because I don't trust others. And if they're running, I'll also run. But if you can guarantee that no one's going to run to the cookie jar, no one's going to break the rule, and everyone's giving, we could all cooperate with that. An interesting take. So this becomes like the blind leading the blind, a vicious cycle. It's like when the media says, and they're blamed for giving us such low common denominators, such, such a trashy or, or, or uh, a very low quality program, they say that's what people want. And the people say that's not what we want, that's what they're giving us. And you don't know who's, who's to blame. And the advertisers just follow wherever the people are watching. So obviously if you're going to give people things that are titillation and, and low quality type of entertainment, that may feed into their lowest... Uh, so-called, to, their, to our ugliest part of our personalities. The point here is not to blame. The point is to take control of your life. To take control of your life means looking at what are givens, what are the axioms, what are the so-called things you, th- you take for granted, and realize they're not always accurate. And even if we have loving parents and we have good educators and we have good, good, fr- good friends and peers, you still have to look at this point because this point is really lies at the heart of so much. It lies at the heart of relationships. When you go into a relationship, are you a giver or a taker? Do you feel it's all about you? And yes, you'll give something in order to get in return. We all understand where that goes. Imagine both parties are that way. So as long as it's mutually uh, acceptable, basically mutual selfishness, so to speak, it works, but what happens the day it doesn't work? What happens when you feel you can get something from someone else more than from your spouse? And the same thing is trust in friendships and trust in, at work. It touches at the heart of every aspect of our lives. Now, it's interesting. We began our lives nine months in our mother's womb we were only taking, only receiving, I should say, because that's a natural state. It wasn't just wasn't grabbing and taking. We're being completely nurtured, protected, fed, sustained by, your, by, the, by our mothers. Our mothers, on the other hand, are in a process of almost complete giving. Imagine having someone occupy your entire being for nine months. Not just giving someone a little corner in your house, but your whole being, everything, apart, everything about you has changed. I remember once a little girl saying to her pregnant mother, saying, Mommy, how do you have room inside you for someone else? 
And I thought about it. Men usually don't have room for someone even outside of themselves, let alone inside themselves. So it's a biological thing, obviously, but there's also a temperament, a personality, and perhaps I, the feminine mystique, includes that ability to contain another, which includes a certain selflessness because you have to be a giver whether you like it or not. And the same thing, healthy parents, especially in early stages of children's lives, are giving. Yes, of course you have tremendous joy seeing your little baby giggle and seeing your baby happy. So you could say there's a certain selfishness and also you see them as an extension of yourself. But we also know parents can also be very selfish and can actually hurt their children and can be annoyed, can be aggravated by children. So you see these issues of giving and taking go back to the earliest stages of our lives, long before we're consciously we're conscious and aware of it, long before our memories. It's embedded in our very being. So the real question has to be asked, who are we? Who are you? Are you fundamentally a giver or are you fundamentally a taker? And the fact that you may have become a taker may not be who you are. That may be a survival tool. You've learned that. You've acquired those skills. So this takes us back to the very essence of who we are. And that's why it's so valuable and precious to address this. Because it's really about understanding yourself. Now, of course, if you go intellectually and philosophically, you can make an argument both ways. You can make an argument that taking survival of the fittest, we see in history, we see how people have behaved. But you can also, in ways that are very selfish, and push comes to shove, people can turn into something that we never would want to imagine. You hear stories, horror stories, avalanches, hunger, torture, how people turn on each other, even on people they deeply love for their own survival. You know, if you're really under those dure- on such duress, under such circumstances, what would you do? Were you dying from hunger and your body is impossible to take it? Would you turn to cannibalism? Which we have documentation of. Normal, regular people. Because hunger can drive you mad. You could find excuses. But you say to yourself, me? I would never do that. Now, cannibalism doesn't mean you just go kill someone. You find the weaker one, you find ways, justifications. So strong arguments can be made that when people push comes to shove, the Freudian id emerges, and it's all about me, 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 and nothing else matters. Yes, in regular circumstances, or as Warren Buffett puts it, you don't know who's been swimming naked until the tide is out. So in regular circumstances, when the tide is in, we all behave. We have a certain normal behavior, give and take, relationships, coexistence. But under Dire circumstances, who knows? So a strong argument can be made for that. But then you also see unbelievable acts of nobility, of kindness, of generosity, of virtue, of selflessness, where people literally allowed themselves to their lives to be taken before they would turn someone else in. And not always for a relative or a friend, for strangers as well. So are these people wired differently? Or maybe there are two voices within us, which is perfectly accurate. That's exactly as the Tanya, the classic work, magnum opus of Rav Shneir Zalman of the Adi, talks about the battle of the two souls, the two voices. One is the selfish, he calls the animal soul, survival, me, my needs, 
taking. And the other is called the divine soul, the transcendent one, which is far more reflective. And its very nature is giving. Is selflessness. Not because it doesn't value itself. Not because it's a doormat and doesn't have any self-esteem and therefore allows itself to be annihilated and stepped upon and used by others. No, out of strength. Because transcendence is getting beyond yourself and beyond what you need and what you take. Giving becomes an act of transcendence, of an experience greater than yourself. Love is not about what I need. Love is about what I receive. What do you receive? You receive an experience beyond yourself and beyond your needs. What we would call transcendence, true transcendence. Not transcendence as another selfish need, but truly experiencing something beyond yourself. What I often refer to as the bittel. It's a Hebrew word used in Jewish mysticism. B-I-T-T-U-L. It's a combination of humility, modesty, but above all, suspending yourself to experience something greater than yourself. It's a form of commitment, of devotion. And of course, the argument can be made that that's our natural self. The answer is we do have both voices. But what lies at the heart and the heart of hearts? I'm not here to prove it, even though there are arguments and proofs for it, because I go by what I would like to call experiential proof. Not logical, not mathematical, not empirical, but experience. The resonating truths that we relate to. When you see a mother cradling her child in a state of giving, there's something that resonates about that. If you saw your mother using her child and even hurting the child for her own interest, there's something great, more than grating, something wrong. Is that a proof? You could say we're wired to, to like pleasant experiences. Yes, and therefore it's harsh to see cruelty. But that tells you something about who we are. The fact that some human beings have learned to justify cruelty and sadism and, uh, and sociopaths or psychopaths who don't feel empathy for anyone else, we don't see that as a norm. We see that as an aberration, as something abnormal. So... Without getting into the argument of it, the point to make, to make is that I'm going with that approach, that giving is our natural self. And that goes back to what love is. Is love a selfish experience or love is a selfless experience? There's no doubt that love gives us much and we can receive much from it. But love is even more so when you give. I remember a couple coming to see me. They were having, over the years, different issues, their domestic issues and problems. They were already considering breaking apart. They had come to some of my classes. I wanted to hear my opinion. And they looked like they were already at the, like the end of the line in their mind. So I asked them, who did they go to? What happened till now? Just to get some history. So they shared with me, they went to different therapists and marital therapists and this type and that type, individually, together. Nothing really worked. And I said, nothing, that anything resonate, that anything, that anyone suggests something that, that worked even for a short period of time. I just, again, wanted to get a sense of what happened and also who they are. They said, yeah, there was one therapist, one very wise woman, and she made us list 
each of us independently to list the needs we have and the needs we expect to receive from our spouse in marriage. We made that list, and then she asked us to number the list by priority. What's the most important thing? And what's the least important or most optional? And we did that as well, which was a very interesting exercise, just to see their priorities. And then she asked us to make another list of what we think we're giving, so to speak. How are we responding? And then they showed each other's lists. And here too, to see how much do you think you're actually fulfilling the need of your partner. And the discrepancies were quite uh, glaring. Like the number one important need for the woman, for the wife, was not that important for the husband. And he never realized how important it is to her. Or maybe he realized and didn't act on it. So this, she said, really helped us understand each other. And we had these lists. We went back home. I remember putting my list on the refrigerator and on a desk. My, my husband put it on his, in his office. And we would look at these lists all the time. And it made us aware. Oh, this is really important to her. Or this is very important to him. And we tried to prioritize and tried to shift things. So I said, so what happened? It worked for a while, but then it became such an ordeal. I had to run to my list. Oh, I forgot this. That's an important thing. And this is not that important. It became such a mess. And then there are things he wasn't doing for me. And then I said, should I tit for tat? So it, didn't, it fell apart. It didn't really work long term. So I smiled. I said, I'm going to ask you to make one more list. They say, no, please, with the lists. We have enough with the lists. So I say, one more list. What do you bring to the relationship? What do you give? Not based on your needs, on the other person's needs. What do you give? And it was interesting because such a shift. That was never something that was on their mind. Their mind was... How much am I prioritizing my spouse's needs? Which, of course, is also focuses on giving. But the point was, it wasn't the giving, it was about satisfying. And here, the point is, put the focus on yourself. Be a giver. It's a beautiful concept that I once heard, and I use it a lot in my talks and presentations, that there are three levels of love and commitment. One is... You love somebody, they ask you to do something. So even if you're not comfortable or you're not, it's not convenient, you do it anyway. Number two, they don't ask, but they allude to it. They hint to it. So you don't make believe you didn't hear. You do it as well, even if it's inconvenient. It's a deeper level of love. You don't have to wait to be asked. And then there's the third, the deepest level. You're not asked, not even alluded to. You anticipate, what would my beloved enjoy? And they're not expecting it. And they're not waiting for it. They didn't ask for it. And you do it. It's like a surprise. Spontaneous. That's the deepest level. Because it's not based on a request. And it's not based on a need. And that's the deepest love. Because it's coming from that part of yourself. And indeed, the way the mystics explain it. That when you give. In a way, you're giving yourself even more than you give to the person who's receiving not selfishly. Why? When you exercise, for example, you run, you walk, you exercise different muscles or different parts of your body. So today you can run a mile, tomorrow, next week, two miles, three miles. 
You can throw an object 100 feet, 200 feet. What are you doing? You're conditioning, exercising your muscles. And what's happening in return? They produce more. They're able to be more flexible. They're able to yield more. The same thing is with our spiritual muscles. We have within ourselves our soul, our psyche is made up of parts. It's not physical parts. And one of them is called love. Some of you are familiar with my book, The Spiritual Guide to Counting the Omer, The 49 Days, which we just concluded. Talk about the seven emotions, seven times seven. So love is the first one. What's love giving? When you give, it's not just satisfying that obligation or that sense of responsibility that when you have more, you should share with another. That's an obvious thing. You're also exercising a muscle. You're exercising a spiritual, emotional attribute and faculty within yourself. It's called chesed. That's your muscle. And when you exercise it, you become healthier. It's like exhaling and inhaling. So you think inhaling is taking. But if you don't exhale, you're not going to have a healthy balance. You won't be able to survive, frankly. So the same thing is giving is a form of expression that allows you to be yourself and actually build your confidence. I would even submit that the people who find it hardest to give are the most insecure people because they feel if they give, I'll have less. True givers are so secure. I can give, I don't feel less. I feel more actually. Physically, yes, if you give someone half of your food, half of your money, you have less. But spiritually, as I said, psychologically, And emotionally, you receive a lot more. So it's a whole other take on how we look, no pun intended, another take on how we look at taking and giving. So it's really about you discovering yourself. When you know who you are well and you're confident, it's very easy to give. It's when you don't know who you are, so you're always scrambling to look, who am I? And if I give away whatever I have, maybe I'll be less. So how do you become a giver in a world of takers? First is understanding who you are and having the confidence, knowing that this is your mission. And when you do that, you become the ultimate giver, and the ultimate giver is the healthiest person. Because it's coming from within. You're living from inside out. Now, of course, there are times and there are situations where we need to receive where, like I mentioned before, young children, babies in their mother's womb. That's what trains them. They learn what it means to give. They're not just receiving and taking. That's their state because at that point they're vulnerable and need someone to nurture. They need to be sustained. But they also are learning process. When a child emerges from the mother's womb for nine months, it experiences giving. It took, but experienced its mother's giving. So when we nurture our children, and when we nurture others, we're actually teaching them how to give. It's all part of that process. The taking part, or the receiving part, I should say, is an outgrowth of that. It's not like balancing two voices. It's true, we have the two voices, the animal soul and the divine soul. But it's ultimately understanding that we're fundamentally meant to be creators, initiators, generators, proactive. You tell me, who's the healthier person? A person who's always reacting to others? Or in another way of saying taking, meaning learning and taking from others? Or someone who knows how to lead and be proactive and generate, initiate? 
Initiate means you're not looking around you and seeing what others are doing. You're looking inside yourself and initiating. That's a form of giving. And that, and that builds that confidence. In dealing with any individual who's growing and struggling, we're all deal, we all have our challenges. Always, I always look for the first thing in them. Let's find a strength, something you can share with someone else. Piece of wisdom, experience, and uh, feeling, empathy. Anything that you have that you can give to another. And encourage the person to give. I can tell you it's always works magic. Because besides the fact that you're actually helping others, what does it do to you? It starts building your confidence. Start building, hey, you know what? I've helped someone. And we're not talking about getting credit or award or reward. It's just a sense that you matter, you're valuable, and you've helped somebody. It's the first step in any healing. It's to learn to serve. You're here not to take, you're here to give. Now for some, that's terrifying. What do you mean? I have my needs. I need, to rec- I need enough money. I need my luxuries. I need my whatever necessities and luxuries. I have to provide for my family. That's all fine and good. That's called surviving, even if it's in a prosper- prosperous way. But what's the purpose of why you were sent here? To survive? To just make it? To play defense? You're here to be proactive. You're here to give. You have a light to give. Are you giving that light to others? And when you're busy taking, you can't be busy giving. When a person is speaking, they can't be listening. So we're in a mode of protective mode, or even we'll call it protective. I'm taking care of myself. Then the day that's somewhat of a defensive stance, based on a world of survival of the fittest, where we see dog eats dog, and we see how people treat each other. But that's not your destiny, and you're not trapped by that. You have the full right and ability to pull yourself out of it. One of the cliches, or maybe obvious questions I ask people, it's a cliche, but I happen to like this cliche. Are you part of the problem, or are you part of the solution? If you put yourself in the taking because everybody's doing it, so I don't want to be different, you're part of the problem. You want to be part of the solution, you have to pull yourself out of that state of mind, out of that mentality, and start giving. And you have what to give. Don't ever think you don't. Fascinating statement in one of the, by the sages in the Talmud, in the, actually in the ethics of the fathers. Who is the wise person who learns from everyone? Who is the wise person who learns from every person? Which tells us that everybody has something to learn, everything, everyone has something to teach. Even a pauper is obligated to give charity relative to his state. Because giving is the essential state of who we are and that turns us into creators. Yes, the creator himself, God himself, wants, wants us to be godlike. And godlike means you're not on the receiving end. Which is why we actually feel some shame and we feel humiliated even when our lives are based on someone else giving us a gift. Even though, you may say, getting a gift, you can live comfortably. Talmud nevertheless says that a person desires one measure that they earn on their own, more than nine measures given to you as a gift. But nine million can buy a lot more than one million dollars. But you'll also squander it easily. You didn't earn it. It's not yours. It actually undermines your your self-confidence. 
Recently, someone told me they have a father-in-law who's very wealthy. And after they got married, he wanted to send them gifts. I said, take the money, but put it into an account. Save it for later. To marry off your children, for, retire, for whatever it is. Not, don't live on that. Don't become dependent on it. Dependent be on your efforts, on your work. Even though there's a temptation, we all would like to have that type of gift. But at the end of the day, it's a gilded cage. You want to become yourself, you need to initiate. You need to generate. You need to give. And that's the power of giving. So it's really about identifying who you are. And instead of looking at yourself as another number, another statistic. Oh, everybody's taking, so I'm also a taker. No. Be a leader. Dare to be a leader. Dare to be an initiator. Dare to be a giver. That's how we become givers in a world of takers. And interestingly, by osmosis, you affect others as well. That's how it works. Giving breeds giving. Taking breeds taking. So you'll teach others as well. Now this by no means means compromising what you need. It doesn't mean compromising the basics. Obviously, you work for someone you deserve to be paid. There's always a give and take in life. The question is what we identify ourselves. Not whether there is a negotiation, whether there isn't a give or take. Of course there is. But it's not your identity. Your identity is a giver. Your identity is a bearer, an agent, an ambassador of light, of infinite light. You have that power to change your environment. But to do that, you have to get out of being trapped in that environment. As the scientists tell us, whether it was Einstein who said that you cannot solve a problem from the same system where the problem was created. In the world of takers, you're not going to solve the problem through taking. You're going to solve the problem through giving, through going outside of the system, out of the box, and beyond, and saying, I'm going to bring a new light into this picture. And that's a fundamental shift of consciousness. It's a paradigm shift of how to think about yourself and how to think about your life. And when you do so, everything changes. You're not less happy. You become free from the need to be taking. And you become emancipated, the freedom of giving. Imagine a world where we have that, not just that capacity, but we actualize it and affect so many of us. That's the purpose. And that leads me to conclude that this is the mission of the Meaningful Life Center. This has been Simon Jacobson of the Meaningful Life Center. Meaningfullife.com is our website where you can find a wide array and menu of many different topics. Please check it out. Please subscribe to our growing YouTube channel. Share with others. Love to hear your feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, suggestions. Be blessed. Allow yourself to shine. In the words of Oliver Wendell Holmes, in that tragic poem, The Voiceless, alas to those that die with their songs still inside them. No, sing your song. Give your melody. Give your music to everyone that you can reach. And you'll be enriched many, many times over. Be blessed. Thank you so much. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. 
Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com donate.